Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I know some of you will probably be going out to lunch here in, uh, in Palo Alto at one of the many uh, fine bistros around here. But there are also fast food places, and uh, there's a, a gentleman who's written a book about the fast food nation, the franchise business, and how it changes our world and the world of agriculture around us. And so will you please welcome Eric Schlosser, author of Fast Food Nation, The Dark Side of the All-American Meal. Now, first of all, we know you're not a vegetarian, but you no longer eat steak tartare. I don't. I miss it. But I've been into the plants, seen how the beef is being processed. So no more ground beef at the moment. Not even really cooked? It doesn't really taste good when it's really cooked. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's ultimately not because I'm afraid of getting sick. It's uh, I'm so angry at what is in the ground beef today, which is unnecessary. And whereas if, if you're a healthy person and you eat ground beef, you probably won't get sick. But lots of other people are getting sick, and it's unnecessary. I like in your... Uh your acknowledgments that you you thank your family let's see it says during the writing of this book my family was often subjected to highly unpleasant details (laughs) and many of your friends and family have put up with a lot I'm lucky they will still share a meal with me it's true I mean during the during the writing this book I I have to admit I was not always the most pleasant person to be around and this book uh, is very the writing of it was helpful to my friends and family because instead of talking about it all the time at dinner and other occasions I could just put it in the book and deal with it that way and uh, now I'm actually quite pleasant conversation. <laughs> I mean it's a it's a gruesome story and, and like Upton Sinclair you take a look at the meat manufacturing business and what's been done in the assembly lines but even larger than that you you take on the ideas of, of how it's affected agriculture and the way we as a country deal with speed and our desire to to eat and stuff food into us um, rather than taking time to slow down, uh, maybe make use of, of local produce and, and so forth, that it's changed the way we are as hunters and gatherers. Well, you know, it's changed the way our food is produced. It's changed what we eat. And what was so remarkable for me is how few of us know it. I mean, I ate fast food all my life. I certainly had never thought about it. And this is the food that enters your body, becomes part of you. Um, and yet we, we give so little consideration to it compared to other consumer purchases that we spend much more time worrying about and comparing the features. Uh, but the reality is, in the last 25 to 30 years, our food production has changed more than in the last 30,000. And uh, this has big consequences, and we all have to eat. So ultimately, the book is not telling people what to do. It's a piece of investigative journalism that follows the all-American meal back to its origin. And there have been big changes in how that food is produced. One of the most telling details of your book is that many people in restaurants, these fast food restaurants, won't eat there. Well, you know, uh, so much of what's going on in one of these fast food restaurants depends on who the manager is. Not even what the chain is, but who the manager is. If it's a good guy or a nice woman treating, treating the workers well, things are being done properly. If the workers don't like the manager, all bets are off. And I met quite a few teenage workers who would only eat the food if they'd prepared it themselves. Now, Anthony Bourdain has written Kitchen Confidential and shows that 
that sort of stuff happens even at uh, the most expensive restaurants sometimes too. Don't, don't send your salmon back to have it cooked a little more. And why not? Well, you may get a little extra sauce uh, on it. I've probably had some extra sauce then in my time. When you, um, uh, what is it about agriculture? You also wrote about strawberries in California. It's, it's, it seems to be that one of your interests is not just the, the food industry, but the people who work in it and the use of, uh, of low-paid workers, migrant workers. Well, it's this whole hidden America. And uh, I wrote about strawberries when Pete Wilson was really blaming illegal immigrants for most of the problems in California. Having spent a lot of time here, intuitively that didn't make sense. It seemed like the illegal immigrants and uh, the Latinos were working very hard at lots of jobs other people didn't want to do. So I looked at migrant workers in California, the migrant labor, uh, and found that the number of migrant workers had soared in California as the state shifted to high specialty crops like strawberries. And in reality, what I found uh, was that uh, many of Pete Wilson's, Wilson's big backers and the growers of California were profiting enormously from having huge numbers of very poor illegal immigrants uh, pick their crops. So I followed the harvest from San Diego up to Watsonville, uh, Salinas. And this book is very similar in many ways. I, I use the strawberry to tell the story of all these other big issues uh, in America, in California agriculture. And this book uses fast food to look at all kinds of issues that this food raises. I was amazed, amazed in meatpacking communities to bump into migrant workers who had worked at strawberry ranches and raspberry uh, ranches in California that I'd visited. And in the meatpacking industry, what they've done is for the first time we have a migrant industrial workforce. And they've basically borrowed from the page of the California growers who've relied on this labor for 100 years, but now you see it in meatpacking plants. So taking these foods and these, these things we take for granted and then showing the whole system behind it, I think can illustrate a lot more about other aspects of our culture. One aspect you talk about also is the franchising business. And, and you talk about Ray Kroc's partner who once explained to investors, we're not in the food business, we're in the real estate business because they in fact would buy the land that the McDonald's restaurants were on and then rent, charge rent to the McDonald's operators as well as overage on every hamburger sold. So they were actually landlords more than restaurateurs. Well, you know, as landlords, uh, the, as a landlord, the McDonald's Corporation has enormous power over many of its franchisees because if these franchisees start tampering with the ingredients or doing things a little poorly, it's also a violation of the lease. Uh, the McDonald's Corporation is the largest owner of retail property in the world. And uh, the franchise business is really interesting. In, in the early years, I mean, I talk about the early days of the industry, these were real rebels, iconoclasts, self-made men, like Dave Thomas, who just passed away. High school dropouts created this industry. Franchising was a way for guys who could never get a loan at the bank to expand their company because someone else would put up the money. And it just got turned into this huge industry that became a way of making every city look like every other city. And now we've gotten to the point where many franchise uh, companies are expanding through small business administration loans backed by federal taxpayers. And basically, we now have federal taxpayers helping uh, to put small businesses out of business through the Small Business Administration, which is quite a turn from how it all started. The franchising also went into the, the, the automobile business, and it was one of the ways the automobile business started, and oil and gas, and 
and other trades? The, it, the, the very early years of franchising were automobiles, gas stations, Singer Sewing Machine Company. And Ray Kroc and Colonel Sanders really pioneered it with a retail environment like restaurants. And the success of McDonald's, the success of KFC, encouraged other companies. The founders of The Gap were very open about how they were inspired by the success of McDonald's and KFC. So our retail landscape has really been transformed in the last 25 years by this idea of taking the same environment and repeating it again and again and again at multiple locations. At some level, though some might not like that, many people also find that reassuring, you know, that there's a consistency, a, a sameness wherever they may go. That's a huge part of the appeal. And uh, motels, I mean, you know what you're going to get. I mean, McDonald's, if you're traveling, you know what you're going to get. But all of these things, ideally, would find some rational balance. So it's not bad, maybe, to have a few hundred McDonald's or a thousand McDonald's. But once you have 13, 14,000, um, once you have chain stores driving out independent uh, businesses, not just in the restaurant industry, but all kinds of other industries, things get out of whack and everywhere starts looking like everywhere else. And so, I mean, I understand the instinct for reassurance, but there's also something nice about life when it's unpredictable. And uh, when, you know, when you go to independent restaurants, sometimes you get a terrible meal. I mean, absolutely terrible. But sometimes you get a great meal that's, that's unexpected. And I think this whole drive towards franchising and chain stores has peaked. The Gap isn't doing very well. McDonald's is not doing very well. And I think this is going to fall much more into balance. And you're going to look back on this past 20 years in history as a period of real conformity and conservatism. How do you explain the success of what a friend of mine calls the four bucks coffee chain? Well, <laughs> maybe it's up to five bucks now. I, don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's around the world. Yeah. Uh, well, they had a brilliant idea. I mean, when you, when you look at how McDonald's earns most of its money, it doesn't earn it from the hamburgers. It earns it from the soda. I mean, the profit margins on the soda are astronomical. Starbucks was ingenious. They started out, we won't even sell the food. We'll just sell this beverage, and the profit on selling coffee is astronomical. So the coffee tasted good. They had an incredibly profitable model. They gave people couches. And, and, uh, and beyond that, though, they have been remarkable in their site selection in that they will open up next to independent coffee shops and independent coffee places and put them out of business and have so much money that they're able to stick it out. Whereas, I mean, one of the reasons that independent businesses have such a hard time competing against any kind of chain, if you have your own little independent coffee bar or your own little restaurant, you can't advertise on the Super Bowl. If there are 3,000 chain restaurants and they pool their advertising and marketing budget, I mean, they can advertise on TV, they can have all kinds of promotions. I mean, the fast food industry spends $3 billion a year just on television advertising. So independent restaurants have a very difficult time competing. But, you know, I think that's where you find the most interesting things to eat. You, you know that movie, You've Got Mail, where Meg Ryan tries to save her little independent bookstore, but she goes to four bucks for coffee, you know, and goes to the big chain rather than the local Manhattan coffee shop. Yeah. Which seemed to be a, sort of a conflict. But also, she also wasn't using the, uh, the local independent ISP as well, I, mean, but <laughs> I suppose. Well, you know, I mean... It's hard to live a life that's totally pure, you know? <laughs> but, but at the same time, at the same time, 
every dollar you spend is supporting a certain set of values that that company embodies to the degree that you can spend your money places where people are doing it the right way. It makes a difference. Eric Schlosser, his book is Fast Food Nation, The Dark Side of the All-American Meal. What, uh, as, a, as a journalist, what's your next project? Book on prisons. Another great... Another franchise operation. Another, uh, <laughs> increasingly a franchise operation and, a, and another American institution that thrived in the same years as this industry. And I think that, again, I think the prison boom has peaked but just like the fast food industry, I think both of these social phenomena need a real shove hard to move in the opposite direction. Is there a, you, you call it the dark side of the American meal, and indeed there are many dark aspects of it. Is there a, a cheery, a happy aspect of it that, that you'll grant them? Yeah, there are some. And, and I tried for this not to be a diatribe. I tried for it not to be black and white and to, to make it complex. There are a lot of really good people in this industry. I write about one of them, Dave Feimster, franchisee, Little Caesars in this little town in Colorado. He cares about his workers, genuinely. Takes care of them, inexpensive food. Um, you know, this, this industry employs a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be employed, the handicapped, the elderly, teenagers, recent immigrants. And so many of the harms being caused by the fast food industry and the meatpacking industry are unnecessary. Um, you really could imagine an industry that provides food inexpensively, that tastes good, that doesn't have the he same health consequences, and you could also structure it so that we have meat without meatpacking uh, workers being injured to the degree that they are. I mean, many other countries eat meat, and if you go to Western Europe, the kinds of uh, injuries and accidents and terrible working conditions don't occur in their slaughterhouses. So for me, a lot of this is just about common sense. And unfortunately, common sense has given way to just a very narrow, profit-driven, quarterly mentality that's imposing huge costs on the rest of society. So, Book, Fast Food Nations, out in paperback now, published by Perennial. Thank you very much, Eric Slosser, for being here on West Coast Live. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live live here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.